for the first time, I can officially say, would you open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1? So what we're going to look at this morning is an introduction to the book. But it's not my introduction, it's actually Daniel's introduction. Today's study, The Captivity Begins. That's the name of our lesson. We're going to look at some matters that are covered in Daniel's prologue to his own book. So once you're opened up to Daniel, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these women who hunger and thirst to know you better, hunger for your word. I pray that they are being satisfied, and they will again be satisfied this morning. Pray that your Holy Spirit would have his will and way in every heart here this morning. Again, it's going to be a little bit of a historical lesson with a lot of detail, but that's what makes your word so um, exciting and gives us the confidence that we have in it, that it is your word, because it's just so consistent from one end to the other. Lord, we know that... Um, you're in control, you're sovereign, and we ask that you would be sovereignly in control of this next hour. Help all of our thoughts be captive to Christ, not to wander away in our mind and be thinking of all the busyness and clutter in our lives, but to be focused on your word, because it is indeed the bread of life. And happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Lord, if anybody in this planet has a right to be happy, to know true joy, it is the Christian because we know why, why we are here and what we are to do while we're here, to redeem our time wisely, to serve you, to glorify you with our lives, and we know where we're going because we have been born again. We know we'll spend all of eternity getting to know you in a deeper and better way. Now, um, we just ask you to go before us and help your servant to have a clear mind, help me to speak quickly so I can get everything in. And Lord, may I say nothing that's incorrect? Thank you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Oh, I'm in a feisty spirit this morning. <laughs> All right, so we're going to be looking this morning. You can see the outline on the board. Um, uh, actually, the first chapter is Daniel's personal history. And as we look at the first chapter, I have divided into three sections. You'll see that when you get your notes on email. But we're going to look today at his deportation. Then we'll be looking at his devotion and his deliverance. So that's the three divisions of the first chapter. But under his deportation, when he was deported from Judah, from Jerusalem, over to Babylon. We're going to look at his introductory prologue in the first three verses of the chapter. All right? And as we do that, we're going to look at four matters that he discussed in his prologue. Well, he didn't discuss the first one. Actually, he didn't discuss any of them. <laughs> I'm going to discuss them. The first one is the critic's contention because there is another issue that we need to address concerning the critics, you know, the skeptics of the book of Daniel. And a mistake that they claim occurs, they didn't waste any time, in the very first verse of the book. They say there is a mistake in Daniel in the very first verse. So we're going to address that under the critic's contention. And then we're going to discuss the conquering king. We're going to take a closer look at the man God used to carry out his chastisement on his people. And that man's name is Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to take a little look at him. And then we're going to talk about some cultural contrast between the two places that Daniel mentions in his program. And those two places are Jerusalem and Babylon. You know there's a heaven and a hell. Those are polar opposites. 
In the eternal kingdom, well, on the, in the earthly kingdom, there are two polar opposite cities, and they are Jerusalem and Babel. So we're going to talk about the big contrast between those two places. And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the captive's qualities as we discuss the physical, the mental, and the character character qualities of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, Mishael and the other young Hebrew uh, teenagers that were taken with him to Babylon in that first exile. What were those young men like? So we'll be doing that. And then we'll go on to talk about the indoctrination program of the Chaldeans as they tried to brainwash them into their system. So we're going to begin the introductory prologue by looking at the critics' contention. So I'm going to read the whole prologue since it's only three verses long. Let's look at <clears throat> Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Actually, 1 to 2, I'm sorry. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. They say that Nebuchadnezzar's God, his favorite God, was Marduk. I'll talk about that later. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, the book of Daniel has been, or I mean, a couple weeks ago we mentioned this, uh, the book of Daniel has been a major battlefield between conservative and liberal scholars for years. Well, wasting no time at all, the higher critics of liberal theology find an apparent discrepancy in the opening statement of Daniel. They allege that it contradicts something that Jeremiah wrote. So they say, aha, there's an error, there's a contradiction in the scripture. Daniel says one thing and Jeremiah says another. And what they say is that Daniel said, as you see in verse 1, that Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem, what year? The third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. Whereas, if you flip over to Jeremiah 25.1, or look at Jeremiah 46.2, which you don't need to do, but there Jeremiah says that it was the fourth year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, when that first Babylonian invasion took place. And so, if you're just reading the scripture, you say there's a contradiction, it can't be God's word, God would never contradict himself if he is the one author of the whole Bible, right? So, and if you and I saw that, we'd probably scratch our heads too and say, uh-oh, looks like an error. But the fact is this, Bible critics will find what they want to find in order to support their biased views because they do not approach the scripture believing what it actually says about itself. And it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. They don't approach the scripture thinking to themselves, as I hope you do and I know I do. I don't, you know, I think to myself, okay, the whole Bible, every jot and tittle, is God inspired. God does not make any mistakes. So if this passage that I'm looking at appears to have an error in it, or if this verse seems to contradict another verse in the scripture, then you know what that means? It doesn't mean God is wrong. It means I don't have all the necessary information 
to solve what seems like a, a problem. Okay? I'm the one with inadequate information. That's how I approach the scripture because I do believe it's God-inspired. Now, in the case of the perceived discrepancy between Daniel and Jeremiah, the solution is really very simple. Very simple. Jeremiah, writing from Jerusalem, used Hebrew dating, whereas Daniel, writing from Babylon, used ba the Babylonian method of computing a king's reign. You see, the Babylonians considered the first year of a king's reign as his ascension to the throne year, and they did not count it among his years of rule. Okay, you get that? Whereas the Jews did count the first year of a king's reign as his first year of reign. So, so that makes perfect sense because Babylon, you know, Daniel was living in Babylon. Babylon, he used Babylonian dating. So it was the third year of Jehoiakim's reign because that first year was his year of ascension, whereas Jeremiah, writing in uh, Jerusalem, used Hebrew dating, and it was the fourth year. Actually, what appears to be a contradiction is actually a further reinforcement of the reliability of a 6th century B.C. Daniel actually being the book's true author. Because a 2nd century forger, you know, like they say that, oh no, this book wasn't written in, in, when, when it says it's written. It was written 400 years later by a forger in the 2nd century B.C. During the time of the Maccabean Revolt, that forger would not know that little detail about the Babylonian way of reckoning a king's reign because the empire of Babylon had been out of existence for some 400 years by the time that that forger would have picked up his pen to write his forgery. You get it? Of course, he never picked up a pen because he didn't exist. <laughs> but this actually is further proof that the Bible is accurate. Daniel, living in Babylon, knew about that little detail of how they computed a king's reign. And since we're on the subject of apologetics, what is apologetics? Right, the, the study of the defense of scripture. Um, since we're on that subject, there is another not yet mentioned significant proof as to the validity of the genuine author of Daniel being Daniel who lived in the 6th century BC. I haven't mentioned this before, but in the great discovery, I'm sure you've all heard about it, of the scrolls or the, the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, you know, the caves of Qumran. Qumran is located down by the Dead Sea in uh, Israel. This was back in the 1940s and the 1950s. There were found in those Dead Sea Scrolls eight fragmentary parchments or scrolls, uh, manuscripts of Daniel. And the oldest of these fragments dates from the time of the Maccabees and Antiochus Epiphanes, which is the second century BC. Um, and that, of course, is the same time that the critics say that the forger author wrote the book of Daniel. And right now you're saying, uh-oh, that sounds like proof, you know, that it dated from the second century when they say the book of Daniel. Okay, but here's the thing. Those fragments that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls were copies. You know, the Essenes, the monks that lived there in those caves, 
they, they believed that the, the Bible was the word of God, so they, were, they would meticulously copy original scrolls of the Bible and make copies. Those were copies made by those Essenes. You know, they didn't have Office Macs and Staples in that day, so you could just take an original and make copies of it right away. It took a while for the originals to work their way to those monks, and it took them a while to, to copy the copy. So what this really means is that the original scroll of Daniel from which these fragments were copied had to have existed prior to the date of the copies. Did you follow that? All right, thank you. Now here's another fact to think about, all right? The Septuagint. You know what the Septuagint is? It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. You know, as time progressed, a lot of the Jews forgot Hebrew. They couldn't read Hebrew. They were speaking Greek. So they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. It was in existence some hundred years before the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabean revolt of the second century. So about 100 years, about 300 B.C., we, they had the Septuagint, all right? And guess what? It contains the book of Daniel. That can only mean one thing, only one thing. Daniel already existed before the supposed second century forger ever picked up his non-existent pen. <laughs> now, remember, don't ever forget that the Bible for thousands of years has been subjected to criticism. And yet, the words are still valid. Uh, they are still being read, studied, taught, preached every single day on this planet, as we're doing here today. And those words are alive and powerful, aren't they? And they are still making a difference in people's lives. People who have ears to hear, I should say. The enemy has always attacked the, the word of God. That's what he did, the first thing he did in the garden, right? Yay, hath God said. You can't really believe that. It's, he knows he has to attack the, the Bible because it is the basis for our faith. And he knows only too well from having centuries and millennium of practice, he knows that if he is able to undermine a person's confidence in this book, that then he will be successful in also undermining his or her faith. And that's what he is so busy doing, trying to get people to say, ah, oh, you know, there's too many problems with it, I can't believe it, it's not really the word of God. That's why I want to spend time, every time there's a criticism, I want to spend a little time showing you how what the critics say is not true. They just don't have all the information because they really don't want all the information. They want to point out all the mistakes in the Bible, but there aren't any. There aren't any. You can have confidence in this book. I know I've been studying it for 40 years, and whenever I had a little problem and I researched, I was able to find the solution to whatever seemed like a problem. A weak faith, you see. Satan wants to have people filling our churches who have weak faith, who say, well, you can't really say that the Bible is God-inspired. Yeah, it might contain truth. That's what they say in many churches. You know that? It contains truth, not that it is the word of truth. And then they become the judges as to what is true and what isn't. They make themselves the judges. Well, you can't believe that, but you can believe this. All right? um, but Satan knows that a weak faith presents a, the world with a very weak testimony. 
And that is not what this world full of lost people needs. They don't, they don't need people, Christians with weak testimonies. What they need is a world of uh, the same thing that the world of Daniel's day needed. They need godly, committed men and women of integrity who exhibit exceptional faith even though the character of their time is ungodly. You know, the darker the time, the brighter we can shine. That almost rhymed. <laughs> As we learn from Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, we do not have to succumb to the, the character of our day. We don't have to succumb to the character of our day. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand strong for the Lord. You know, I think about that young crazy who went into the college in Oregon this week and lined people up and said, what is your religion? And I got to thinking about that. Some of those poor people probably died saying that they were a Christian, and they weren't. To me, that would be the worst thing of all. Because a lot of people just tag themselves as Christians, and they're not really saved. They're not really born again. If you're going to die, really die for your faith. So the next minute, you're with the Lord. I got to think about that. You know, if they, if they lined me up and they said, uh, or the guy says, you know, what, what religion are you? You know what I think I would say? Well, I, who, do, who knows what you'd say in a moment like that. It's just awful. But I, I got to think, I thought, I got to be prepared in case this does happen. Somebody could walk through that door. We don't know. Um, I'd say, you know what? Religion? I hate religion. I hate religion. And maybe that would throw them off. <laughs> I do. I hate organized religion. I have a personal relationship with the living Lord. All right, anyway, I got off the... Uh, we, we don't bow the knee. We are not to bow the knee to the pressures of the skeptics and the critics or to the agenda of the elite institutions of higher learning or to the supposedly political correctness of the progressives who are trying to redefine all the absolute truths of God's word. Stand strong. You know, we should, we should sing with the kids. We stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, right? Let's commit to that. Stand strong for your faith. If somebody tries to attack the scripture, say, I know it's God's word. I know there's an answer. I'll go and look it up. I'll ask Catherine. No, don't do that. <laughs> All right, that's what I want to say about the critics and their contention. Let's move on to the conquering king. Did you know there has been no family in the Old Testament that made a faster flash upon the horizon of history than the family of Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar. No family, just, I mean, like a meteor, <laughs> flashed across the pages of history and disappeared. You know, just as fast as it came on the scene, it disappeared into obscurity after the degenerate reign of Nebuchadnezzar's um, grandson, Belshazzar. Did you know that there is more physical evidence left behind from this family on the world stage than any other family mentioned in the Bible? We have more physical evidence that this family, Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar, down to Belshazzar, actually existed than any other family because we have all the ruins of uh, Babylon. And... Um, there is more said, did you know this? There is more said in the Bible about King Nebuchadnezzar than any other heathen king. He is mentioned more than 90 times in the Old Testament. Wow, that's a lot. Under him, Babylon became <clears throat> the greatest empire of the world at that time. 
which is symbolized in the dream of Daniel chapter 2, where Babylon is pictured by the head of gold. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar dominates chapters 1 to 4 of Daniel. We'll be talking a lot. You'll hear that name. You'll even learn how to spell that name, maybe, <laughs> by the time we're through. He is mentioned in at least nine different books in the Old Testament. That's pretty amazing. He ruled for 43 years, and he died in 561 B.C. <clears throat> the good thing is that he's in heaven. He got saved, and we'll be discussing that. You know, there are three primary Gentile kings in the book of Daniel, and I got to thinking there's a really good way for us to remember them. Girls, you'll like this, okay? Three ways to remember the main Gentile kings in Daniel. The first is Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> and we can call him the furnace king. You know the fiery furnace? He's the furnace king. And then there is Belshazzar. We're going to call Belshazzar, remember B, B, okay? He is the banquet king. Belshazzar, the banquet king. The one, you know, with the hand came and wrote on the wall. And the last one is Darius, and he was a king of the next empire that came on the scene, the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius is the Lion King. I thought the girls would like that because of the Disney movie, The Lion King. So Nebuchadnezzar, the fiery furnace king. Belshazzar, the foolish banquet king. And Darius, the fierce lion king. However, the supreme king who is over all of them the one who changes the times and the seasons and removes and sets up these and other kings before and after them is, of course, the Lord. And that's what Daniel makes very clear in verse 2 when he says that it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And although Nebuchadnezzar did not know this truth, and he would not know this truth for many years, yet he was God's servant as it says in Jeremiah 43.10. He was the servant of God. Jeremiah said this. He said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. My servant. The Babylonian king, mentioned in so many books of the Bible, mentioned over 90 times, who thought he was really something before he got humbled. But he was merely a tool in God's hand to chasten his people for their disobedience to him. He was God's servant. Now, he would have thought, if you'd asked him before his humility experience, if you had asked him about his victories, you know, what, what gave you your victories? Because he did, you know, create an empire very quickly. He would have said, well, number one, it was the result of the superiority of his gods over the God of Israel and over the gods of the Assyrians and everyone, the Egyptians, you know, everyone else he conquered. It was the superiority of his gods. And number two, he would have given credit to himself as being a great military leader. But the only reason, here's the truth, the only reason that Nebuchadnezzar had any success at all was because God used him to achieve his purposes. He was a servant, a tool in the hand of God. That proud king would learn the hard way um, that truth because one day he would confess these words. Right out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, he says in Daniel 4, 17, the Most High, remember the name? What's the name? El? 
Elyon, the Most High, ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Is it just a coincidence that Vladimir Putin right now is the head of Russia? Is it a coincidence that Obama is the head of the United States? Is it a coincidence that um, Benjamin Netanyahu is the head of Israel, prime minister of Israel? No. God gives kingdoms to whoever he will. <laughs> and this is true of all kings. It's true of all national rulers back then and now. Another illustration of this is found in the words of God uh, through Isaiah when he said that the Assyrians, now remember it was the Assyrians who took away the northern kingdom called Israel back in that day. Isaiah said that, um, he was speaking for God. God said that the Assyrians were merely the rod of his anger. Isaiah 10.5. Now, we didn't really discuss much of the history of the northern kingdom and its spiritual decay. Last week in our jet tour through history, we kind of focused on the southern kingdom and their decay um, in our little time machine ride. <laughs> but... Um, the, the, the northern kingdom, their spiritual situation was not good at all. They never had a single godly king that reigned over them. The whole time of their existence, not one godly king. At least Judah had a few good kings. They never had one. And did you know that the people of the north, the northern kingdom, actually returned to the worship of golden calves? That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? Sad. I mean, they were worshiping golden calves. They set up altars to golden cal calves in the north in the city of Dan and all the way down to the south of their uh, kingdom in Bethel. Bethel, of all places. You know what Bethel means? House of God. And they're setting up worship places, high places, to worship the golden calf, just like they did um, back in Moses' day when he came down from getting the law at Mount Sinai and found that they had built themselves a golden calf. It's just, it's, you know, it's a national disgrace. They refuse to listen to their prophets. They refuse to listen to such prophets as Amos and Hosea and others. So God stopped speaking to them. And that is a frightening thing. When God stops talking to his people and leaves them to their own devices, that is scary. When he gives a people over to their own reprobate minds. But that's what he did in some of his very last words through Hosea to the northern kingdom, who he called Ephraim. He said this. He says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Ooh. That's Hosea 4.17. That's scary words to say. I don't know how ready God is to say that about America. But that's why it's scary for me to think of. She is joined to her idols. Let her alone. But God uses heathen nations as his rod, his tool, his servant to chasten his people, which should be no surprise because that's exactly what he said he would do. Remember the Mosaic Covenant? You can go right back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28. This very simple principle, he said to his people, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you'll suffer the consequences. And one of them, he said, was that you would be carried off by heathen peoples. I would use them, you know, to chasten you, to get your attention. 
So once he was finished using Assyria as his rod of punishment on the northern kingdom, he began to warn Judah of the next servant rod that he would use on them if they too didn't you know, stop sinning against him, if they persisted in sinning against him. They had a warning. They had a visible warning when they saw the ten northern tribes get carried off into obscurity. Don't you think that should have gotten their attention? But does, does man seem to learn from history? Never. I, we just don't. We know, you know, because a new generation comes along, and they seem to have to learn all the things that the previous generation learned the hard way. Don't you wish you could just pass along your <laughs> what you've learned to your children and your grandchildren, so they didn't have to learn it the hard way? Um, but you know, here's something that's true: before judgment, God always warns. He always warns. That's his way. There will never be a divine judgment that is unannounced or unexpected. Uh, he, he's announcing what he's going to do in the last days, isn't he? I think maybe the world is right now with Russia and Iran and all that's going on. Maybe the world's getting ready for that war of Gog and Magog. Sure looks like it. He said there would be an alliance. I mean, this was back in Ezekiel that there would be an alliance of Russia and Iran and they would come down on Israel. And we sure seem to see that taking place, getting ready for it. But long before the Neo-Babylonian Empire of um, Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar were even a factor on the world stage, they hadn't, they hadn't come into a position yet. You know, that little area of the world was just nothing. It was a province of Assyria. But long before they came on the stage, God, speaking through Habakkuk, said this. He said, and he, he talked about the Babylonians as the Chaldeans. Those two terms are interchangeable. You can say Babylonians or Chaldeans, one and the same. He said this, and this is in Habakkuk 1.12, that he said he would raise up a bitter and a hasty nation to take up the place of Assyria. In other words, very quickly he was going to raise up another nation to conquer Assyria. And it says, he ordained them, this new nation, the Chaldeans, for judgment. And he established them for the correction of his people. You know, it, it's very interesting when you study history. I never liked history when I was in school. But now that I'm teaching, you know, learning, studying the Bible, I love history. There's so much in there. And it shows us why we, we are where we are today. You study history, you learn a lot from history. But the Neo-Babylonian Empire came into existence just at the time of Judah's captivity, just a few years before Nebuchadnezzar took them off into captivity. And did you know that it went out of existence just at the time that the Jews were released to, you know, from, by Cyrus, released and given permission to return to Jerusalem? So God raised this whole empire up and took it down within only 100 years. It, it didn't last longer than 100 years, that whole empire. He raised it up only for the purpose to serve as his instrument of justice. Just as he rose up, raised up the whole um, Assyrian empire as his instrument of judgment against the northern kingdom. Do you get that? That's, he's orchestrating history, it's his story. <laughs> Both of those empires were merely tools, servants in the hand of God. Well, the collapse of Judah was not due to her, to 
her external enemies. Her collapse was not due to the Babylonians, although those external enemies um, were used by God to kind of do the final mop-up operation. But the real cause of Judah's collapse was by way of her own internal corruption. Isn't that again what we see happening to America? It's our own internal corruption. That's a greater terror to us than the external terrorists is what we're doing to ourselves and bringing ourselves under God's judgment. She had become affluent. She didn't, you know, when a nation becomes very wealthy, they don't so much see their need of God. Um, she had turned to the more sensual worship of the false gods. I mean, it was more fun to worship the false gods because of all that was involved. Um, and she would not turn from her worship of the queen of heaven. We're going to talk about that in this lesson this morning. She was a nation that was headed up by liars who knew not and told not the truth. Her kings were putting their trust in worldly kings of other nations, or ayatollahs, <laughs> rather than putting their, uh, you know, aligning themselves with God, her true king. Her leaders were putting blinders over their eyes, and they were saying that there was peace. They were proclaiming peace. Yeah, that's why they didn't want to listen to Jer Jeremiah and threw him in a mud pit to drown. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. Judgment is coming, judgment is coming. Oh, we shut him up, you know, get rid of him. Because they wanted to proclaim peace when actually there was no peace. The people had ignored the Sabbath day. They had ex ignored the Sabbath year. Jeremiah 7.24 therefore says, They hearken not, nor incline their ear. But you know what they did? They walked in the counsel and in the imagination of their own evil hearts and went backward, not forward. Mm. Do you ever watch the news and say, scratch your head and say, there's no more common sense anymore? Why are we going backward instead of forward? I always think that. I mean, we're going back, and that's exactly what God said through Jeremiah. They're going backwards instead of forward. The prophets are yet speaking through the pages of Scripture. Because their words of warning to both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, sound just like they're speaking to us today in 21st America. Right? Doesn't it sound like they're talking to us? Well, they are. The people of Judah and the leaders were deceiving themselves into thinking that everything was fine. Everything was hunky-dory when the reality of the situation was it wasn't fine at all. They were on the brink of disaster. Um, just as our nation is today. We are under the judgment of God. If you didn't hear my end times messages last spring, get them. We are under God's judgment already. And we're on the brink of impending disaster. And so who's it up to? It's up to us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will forgive them and heal their land. You know, it's up to us. We need to repent. We need to um, not bow down and serve the Lord. The reason this country is in the condition it is is because the church is compromised with the world. We need to stop going backward spiritually and morally. We need to learn from history. America, please learn from history. Heed the warnings of God from both his old prophets and new prophets. He's, he has people warning us today, doesn't he? Wake up and listen, America. Pray for America. I love this country, and I hate to see what's happening. Well, 
I'm getting preachy today. Let's look at the cultural contrasts. Uh, there are two geographical places mentioned in the first few verses of Daniel, and they are Jerusalem and Babylon. And Babylon, you'll notice in verse 2, is also referred to as the land of what? Land of Shinar. And uh, we'll talk about why Daniel was inspired to give that title for Babylon in a minute. But there is an infinite contrast between these two places. Let me ask you a question. Where did all false human religion begin? Where did it all begin? Well, I can't hear you. Babel, yeah, Babel. It all began at Babel. Yes, the tower there and everything. Under what name does all false religion end? Revelation 17. Mystery, Babylon. That's the one world ecumenical church of the end times, of the tribulation. Where is God's seat or God's throne on earth? Not heaven, but where is his earthly throne going to be when he, Christ returns? Jerusalem. Yeah, where did he dwell when he was in the Shekinah glory? He was in the temple in Jerusalem. So these are two antithetical places, two opposite places that represent the ongoing battle between God and his adversary, Satan. One city, Babylon, pictures Satan's headquarters. The other city, Jerusalem, pictures God's headquarters. One represents the promised land from where all blessings flow, from where the Messiah, the greatest blessing of all, flowed. The other is the cursed land. One is the place of true worship. The other is the place um, in which humanism and all other false religions spawned. They all came out of Babel. One is the house of God's people. The other is the house of pagans. Jerusalem and Babylon represent true religion pitted against all false religions. Now, we had a quick review of Judah and its history, so now we're going to take a quick review of the history of Babylon. I, as I said a minute ago, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, inspired Daniel to use the term the land of Shinar in order to take our minds, his readers' minds, back to the origin of Babel because it was referred to the land of Shinar in Genesis 11, verse 2. The post-flood people, okay, after the flood, post-Diluvian people, you know, they get out of their ark at Ararat, just Noah and his family, um, and then they begin to multiply. God told them to do what? To multiply and replenish the earth. And it tells us in Genesis 11 that they began to move east, the people. And they eventually settled in a plain in the land of Shinar. Now, this would be the very fertile area of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And there, of course, that's the area of Babylon and the Chaldeans. But it wasn't yet. You know, this is the first time after the flood they're moving there. There, under the powerful leadership of a mighty and the, the word mighty is used of this man back in Genesis four times, but it's a negative mighty. He's mighty in a bad way, an evil way. This mighty anti-God man, and his name was Nimrod. Under his leadership, um, the people decided that they would build themselves both a city and a tower. And their goal in doing so was not to spread out 
and replenish the earth as God had commanded. Rather, their purpose was to consolidate themselves into a strongly centralized society that would be self-sufficient. Perhaps Nimrod, just as Satan had done with Eve, perhaps he convinced the people that God was being selfish in wanting them to scatter all over the earth. Because if they were scattered, then they would be weaker and it would be easier for God to control them. Actually, the truth is that Nimrod wanted the people gathered in his cities. He had established, he had built four cities in what is now Assyria, four city, and the chief of them was Nineveh. You can read all about this. It's back in Genesis 10 and 11. He built four cities, and four is the number of earth, so these were earthly kingdoms, four cities in Assyria, the capital being Nineveh, the main one, Nineveh, and then four cities in the land of Shinar, and the chief of those four cities was Babel. So he wanted the people to be gathered together in these eight cities of his so that they would be under his control. The first kingdom, the first earthly kingdom, you know, not the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of God, but the first earthly kingdom that is mentioned in the Bible is the secular and satanically inspired kingdom of Nimrod, who was the first king of Babel, the king of Babylon, Nimrod. By the way, his name in Hebrew is Marad, M-A-R-A-D, and it means the rebel or the lawless one. It's a picture of the Antichrist, of the end times. And from Marad comes the name Marduk or Marodak. You see, Nimrod <clears throat> was later deified. By the way, Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. He was the grandson of Ham, and he was the sixth son. Isn't that significant? Six, the number of man, six. Uh, he was the sixth son of Cush. But he was later deified. Talk about that later on. Um, they made of him a god after he died, and he was worshipped as the god Marduk. Now, who was King Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god? Marduk. When he took the, te the, vessel, the, the vessels out of the house of God in Jerusalem, he took them to Babylon and put them in the temple, his temp the temple to his god, Marduk. Interesting, isn't it, how it goes all the way back to Babel. The tower that the people built in Babel was to serve as the main focus of the city. The structure itself was what archaeologists call a ziggurat. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. It was similar to a, a pyramid, except that each successive level was recessed so that you could walk to the top, you know, to access the top by steps. You could go up the steps. It served this whole tower, this ziggurat, served um, the people. It was their symbol. It was their way of demonstrating that they could create their own stairway to heaven. Now, they knew they weren't actually reaching up to heaven because if they were trying to literally reach into heaven, they would have put this ziggurat on a, the highest mountain they could find, you know, instead of putting it on the low plain of um, Shinar. So that, you know, they weren't really literally trying to reach heaven, but what they were saying was that they could build their own religion and they could do it their way. They could do it their way without God. 
Also, the idea behind that tower was occultic. Who was behind all of this? Satan was behind it all. Because you see, at the top of that ziggurat, they, um, they put a shrine. There was a shrine dedicated, first of all, to the zodiac. They were worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. They had a, a zodiac center up there. Later on, they, they worshiped gods and goddesses in all of their ziggurats. Um, and occultism. Occultism was behind the religious unity of Babel. Nimrod's evil was really brilliant. Uh, he was, you know, he was being inspired by Satan. He knew that even fear and admiration of him as their great leader, king, would not be enough to keep the people united for very long. Um, what they needed was religious motivation. He knew that. He knew, and we know, man is a religious being. And so if they were going to forsake the true God, and by the way, Ham and Cush and even Noah, I think, was still alive at this time. Think about that. They were still alive. They were the enemies of Nimrod. He was anti-God, anti-Noah and his family. Um, even though he was part of the family, he was the rebellious part of the family. But he knew that if people were going to forsake the true God and not fear disobeying him, then Nimrod was going to need to persuade them that there were other ways to reach heaven. And it has been demonstrated time and time again. I even have a book right down here, but I've got books in my library. Um, and you can just Google this and find this out. I'm not making it up. It has been demonstrated that from Babel, has come the entire complex of false religions. All forms of paganism, polytheism, the worship of many gods, and idolatry all find their origin in the ancient Babylonian religion. Now, we cannot discuss Nimrod without also discussing his lovely wife. <laughs> you know her name? Anybody know it without looking at the board? Simiramis, Simiramis, mm, brought a lot of evil into this world that we're still encountering. She is the founder of the Queen of Heaven cult. She has other names, you know, as the cult spread into other lands where they spoke different languages because of what God did there at Babel and confused them to spread them out like he told them to do originally. Um, her name in other languages is Ashtaroth. Aphrodite, Venus, Fortuna, Devaki, India, Isis, hmm, I-S-I-S, Indrani, Cybel, Diana, Nutria, Ishtar, from where we get the word Easter, which has absolutely nothing to do with the resurrection of Christ, and on and on. I mean, there's hundreds of names for this woman, Semiramis. When Nimrod died, this is gross, but they took his body and cut it up in pieces and sent it all over, and people worshiped the pieces of his body. But his death was greatly mourned when he died. And his wife, Semiramis, made the claim that Nimrod had become the sun god. And because of this, when she gave birth to a son, <laughs> not S-U-N, S-O-N. She gave birth to a son, and it was too long after Nimrod's death for it to be his son. Hmm. She claimed that he had been supernaturally conceived by a sunbeam. <laughs> 
And she named this boy Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z, and even claimed that he was equal with Nimrod. He was actually Nimrod himself reincarnated, reborn. In fact, she declared that her son Tammuz was the divinely promised seed of the woman. You see, these people knew about the promise of the Proto-Evangelium. They're the descendants of Noah. Noah's still alive. They knew about the, so she claims he's the seed of the woman, the fulfillment of the promise given by God to Eve. Now, in the religion that developed from the account of this false trinity, this is a counterfeit trinity made up of Nimrod, Semiramis, and their son, Tammuz. Really wasn't his son, but. Um, not only was the father worshipped as the son god, but the male child, Tammuz, was also worshipped. But the one who was worshipped the most was the mother, Semiramis. In fact, she became known as the queen of heaven. She was the chief priestess through whom the people had to pray in order to reach her husband, the sun god. And this system of idolatry spread from Babel to all the nations of the known world. You can find mother and son statues, images, and they've got their names, Isis, Horus, I mean, all over the place. And this is exactly what Queen Jezebel brought into the nation of Israel. She was a Phoenician princess. Her father was a, a Phoenician uh, king. She was raised in this religion of Babylonianism, and she introduced it into the worship of the true God when she married the weak King Ahab of Israel. She brought her gods and her goddesses in, and he didn't do anything about it. He was pretty weak, wasn't he? Ahab. In the Phoenician language, Tammuz is called Baal, B-A-A-L, and Ceramus is known as Ashtaroth. Jezebel influenced Israel greatly with her Babylonian gods and goddesses. And listen, if you think I'm making all this up, I'm not. <laughs> this is true history. Listen to what Ezekiel said. The prophet Ezekiel, what he saw when the Spirit of God carried him to see, you know, he was captive in Babylon, but the Spirit took him to see what was going on at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And here's what he wrote in Ezekiel 8:14. He said, Then he, God, brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and there I beheld the women weeping for Tammuz. Ezekiel 8, 14. Tammuz. His name is in the Bible. You see, when Tammuz, here's how the legend goes, when Tammuz was 40 years old, he was pierced to death. Satan's a counterfeit at everything. He was pierced to death by a boar, attacked by a boar. And, um, and he, died, he was dead. And the, the women weep, wept for him for 40 days, 40 days, and then he resurrected from the dead. This is where, now I hate to burst your bubble, but this is where Lent comes from. The 40 days before the resurrection and the women weeping. And this is where the hot cross buns come from because they used to, it's in the Bible. It's actually in the Bible about the hot cross buns. <laughs> they would make these little hot cross buns and they would put a T on them. For Tammuz, not for the cross of Jesus, for Tammuz. 
hot cross buns, Easter, the whole thing about the egg. They said after time went on, they, they came up with this idea that Semiramis, the queen of heaven, actually wasn't born by a man and a woman, but she came from heaven in an egg, a giant egg, and she hatched out of the egg. And then they used to color the eggs. It's all paganism. It's all paganism. Even what we do at Christmas is all paganistic. Anyhow, um, Jezebel brought this in. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, no wonder he spent so much time crying. He tried to get the people to hearken to the voice of God prior to the Babylonian captivity by getting them to turn from their worship of Semiramis, the queen of heaven. But he couldn't convince them. In Jeremiah 44, after trying to turn over and over again, trying to turn the, the Jews of Judah away from false worship, we read this response by the people. This is what they said to Jeremiah. You know, shut up, we're going to throw you in the mud. And here's what they said. We will not hearken unto thee, but we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out our drink offerings unto her as we have done, we and our fathers and our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah. We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven. There it is. That's right in the scripture, Jeremiah 44. Jeremiah tried in vain over and over again to convince the people that the reason they were suffering was due to God's judgment for their abomination in worshiping false gods, the false gods that all started back in Babel. But they wouldn't listen. They continued to worship the mother-child Babylonian idols. And when God had his fill, you know, of his own people turning from him to this false religion of Babylonianism, he finally sent them straight to Babylon. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll teach them, right? If they love Babylonian gods and goddesses so much, and they're, you know, the queen of heaven, they could have them. And there in Babylon, what did they learn? A much-needed lesson. You know, they had their fill of Semiramis and the mother-son cult and all the rest of it. Uh, they had their eyes open to the wickedness of Babylonianism, and the Jewish people never, ever again turned to that religious system. I wish I could say that much about Christendom. They even in the tribulation, they will not turn to this mystery Babylon the Great system, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. They will have no part in that worldwide ecumenical church system. So they did learn their lesson. See, God knows what he's doing when he chastens his people. So the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to refer to Babylon as the land of Shinar in order to point to its ancient heritage of wickedness. Man has not changed since the days of Nimrod, that leader of the first organized humanistic rebellion against God. In fact, from the Babel of Nimrod, Genesis 10 and 11, to the Babylon, the Neo-Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar, to the final Babylon of the Antichrist, the natural man remains focused on the same goals, which are to gain, gain fame for himself, you know, put self on the throne instead of God, to find security apart from God, and if he is religious, to reach heaven by way of his own good works, his own efforts. The city that was once called Babel, which means gate to the gods, 
that's what Nimrod and the people named it, Gate to the Gods, was given a new name by God. He changed it from Babel to Babel, short A, because you know what that means? Confusion, confusion. Babylon, the mother of false religions and cults, has come to mean the city of babbling and confusion. And a truer statement could not be made about all paganistic and cultish religions. You study them, and they are confusing. And they just babble on and on with foolishness. In the word of God, Babylon symbolizes worldly pride, spiritual rebellion against God, God, and moral corruption. This system is Satan's masterpiece of confusion, and therefore it is the polar opposite of God. God is not the author of what? Confusion. He does everything decently and in order. That's why this book is so decent and in such progressive order. And it doesn't ever contradict itself. There's nothing confusing about this book. And the only ones who think it's confusing is the natural man because to them it's foolishness. They, don't, they can't discern it because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, Babylon had some other famous kings other than its first one, Nimrod, later, and later on Nebuchadnezzar. The first dynasty, dynasty of Babylon was around 2000 B.C., you see, there was a first, well, there was a Babel way back in Genesis. Then there was about 2000, the first Babylonian empire. And it had a very famous sixth king. Again, there's that number six. The sixth king of the first Babylonian empire was a man by the name of King Hammurabi. Have you heard of him? Why do we know about King Hammurabi? Right, because of his, um, the Hammurabi Code, which was an elaborate uh, system, an elaborate collection of laws called the Code of Hammurabi. It's very famous. And it, again, you know, the people were saying that Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch. There's no way Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He couldn't have written the laws and all that. Of course, he didn't. God did. But um, because man wasn't that civilized and sophisticated back then. And then they found the Code of Hammurabi, and it just blew them out of the water. Because, yes, man was. We are devolving. We are not evolving. <laughs> Um, anyway, so he was, the, he was the king of the first Babylonian empire, which reached its zenith with him, but then shortly after the empire began to deteriorate, fell apart, disappeared from the world scene. However, hundreds of years later, in that very same area of the world, you know, near the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, arose the Neo-Babylonian empire, which just means new Babylonian Empire. And this is, of course, the one that we're considering in the book of Daniel. This Neo-Babylonian Empire had just moved to its ascendancy. It had just reached the point of power in the world, and the key man in its development was Nebuchadnezzar, who, like Nimrod, Nebuchadnezzar was a very impressive man, a mighty man, just like Nimrod, um, an evil man at first, very evil. He was, he was mighty. He was impressive as far as the world is concerned. He was a statesman. He was a politician. He was a soldier. And he was an incredible architect. And speaking of architecture, I wish I knew how to do PowerPoint because I'd love to put some of these pictures up. But just try to imagine when you go home, you can get on your computer and look them up. But we can hardly imagine. Put your, yourself in the, the minds of these young teenage Jewish boys kind of backwood boys, you know, kind of like maybe from Carthage. <laughs> I can say that because I live in Carthage. Um, you know, and they're coming to the big city, New York, for the very first time. And um, 
they had just, they, they, what a transition. They had just gone from being free and sons of royalty, by the way, to all of a sudden they're slaves, they're captives. But I can't just imagine as they're entering into this capital city of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which was the city of Babylon, it, it, was, it must have just been like, <laughs> wow. It was, Babylon was the wealthiest and most beautiful place known to the ancient world. There was, the city itself was actually a 14 mile square city. 14 miles in each direction, square city. And it had a wall around, the, a 56 mile wall around the whole city. And that wall was actually a double wall. There was one wall and it was 25 feet wide. There were apartments on top of it. 25 feet wide, first wall, and then there was this huge space before you came to the second wall, which was also 25 feet wide. And in between those two walls, they say there was enough room for um, four, of, to drive a four-horse chariot. And the walls, okay, the walls, I've lost my place here, the walls, um, 25 feet thick, they went down 35 feet into the ground so that you know, nobody could dig under them. But actually, before you got to the wall, you had to cross the moat because <laughs> there was a moat all the way around the city. Each wall, or the walls, I should say, were 300 feet high. And they went 35 feet into the ground, and then they were 300 feet high. That is tremendous. And each, um, let's see, okay, there were 250 towers on the wall, and those towers raised uh, 450 feet in height. And as I said, there was a, a wall, a moat around the city. There was a drawbridge across the moat that actually they could, you know, pull up at night. And there were ferry boats on the, the river. It was just beautiful. There were hundreds of gates in the wall around that huge city. And all of those gates were made of bronze, solid bronze. And then there were the, you've heard of these, the hanging gardens that uh, surrounded the terraced palace. They were one of the, I mean, the, the palace was magnificent, but the, uh, these hanging gardens were all around the palace and they were terraced, you know, up and down, and they were air conditioned. They had actually developed an air conditioning system. They were also watered uh, by, a, by hydraulic pumps that they, you know, they had the water coming up to irrigate the gardens from the Euphrates River. Talk about advanced society back in that day, and they didn't have the technology that we have just amazing. Um, and the Euphrates River, oh, by the way, the gardens alone had to be staffed by 24-7 um, gardeners. They just had gardeners constantly working on the, just the hanging gardens. The um, Euphrates River flowed right through the center of the city, and the river banks inside the city, now can you picture the river going right down the middle of the city, and the river banks were tiled with beautiful steps that actually led right down to the water, kind of like Venice, if you've ever been to Venice, but all mosaic tile, all the way down to the water's edge. Um, the streets of the city were paved with stone slabs that were three feet square, three feet square stone slabs. And they have, the uh, archeologists have uncovered hundreds and thousands and millions of stones as they've dug up Babylon well, they can't do it anymore, but when we, were, when we had access to it, you know, it's in Iraq. 
Um, but 90-something percent of the stones were engraved with Nebuchadnezzar's name. He was the architect behind all this. And the city housed, this won't surprise you, a great ziggurat. There in the center of the city was this huge ziggurat. This, you know, going back to Babel, wasn't the same one. Um, the city had 53 temples to gods and goddesses, including the great temple of Marduk which is probably where he took the vessels out of God's house and put them in there. There were 180 altars to Ishtar, a.k.a. Semiramis. <laughs> and there was a golden image to Baal, a.k.a. You know what that means, right? Also known as Tammuz, a, gold, a huge golden image to Tammuz, Baal. And there was a golden table that the statue stood on. And I got to wondering, I wonder if this is the image that Nebuchadnezzar built for everybody to worship. It was made of solid gold, over 50,000 pounds of solid gold for the statue and 50,000 pounds of solid gold for the table he stood on. I mean, that's why he's represented in the dream as the head of gold, because gold was just everywhere in this city. Nebuchadnezzar's palace is said to be the most magnificent building ever erected on earth. Now, to, go in, to enter into the city, you would probably go down. They probably took these young captive boys through the gate of Ishtar, it's called. Um, it was also one, uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It has been excavated, and it has been rebuilt, put back together. And it is, you can go and see it if you want to travel to Berlin. Have you seen it? You've seen it. I've seen pictures. Have you seen it? I've seen pictures of how, it's, I mean, it's really tall, isn't it? It's huge, because I see little people. I went online, I saw little people, and then there's this huge gate. It's, it's just magnificent, and it is in the Berlin Museum. It's covered with cobalt blue and gold tiles, and it has dragons and lions all over it. Now, this is interesting. I'm almost done. Nebuchadnezzar did not use sun-dried bricks for all of his buildings as had his predecessors. If you go back to the building of Babel and the Tower of Babel, it tells us in Genesis 11.3 that they used kiln-dried bricks, furnace-treated bricks back then, and Nebuchadnezzar did it, which was not normal for people in that day. But he put his bricks through the fire, and that way they survived the passing of time in that extremely dry climate. Okay, that's interesting. Why were there fiery furnaces in Babylon? Now, we do read later on about a fiery furnace. It's because of all these bricks they were building. Now, even though the remains of Babylon are extremely old, those who behold them today, um, if they haven't been all destroyed by the terrorists, but they are shocked by their beauty and by imagining the grand wealth of this ancient empire. So as Daniel and these other young captive Jewish boys are going through these gates into this breathtaking city, they must have really wondered about the promises of their God, don't you think? The main street down Babylon was called the Processional Way. It was 150 feet wide. It was designed for two-way traffic. It had a meticulously landscaped median down the center um, there were sidewalks on either side. Maybe they even had bicycle paths. I don't know. 
Um, and tiled walls, you know, like when you go to Raleigh and you see the walls on both sides of US-1, well, they had tiled walls on both sides of the processional way. And they also have been excavated and are incredible in their beauty. They're covered with mosaics of palm trees that are 30 feet tall. And there's a band of lions marching single file beneath these huge palm trees. Each lion, and there's many, many lions along that long wall, each lion is seven feet long. And, um, and it's set against this whole thing, these palms and these lions are set against a background of cobalt blue tiles. Some of the lions have white fur, yellow manes, others have yellow fur, white manes, some have yellow fur and red manes, but, manes, but the whole thing is just spectacular. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had an obsession with lions. Isn't that interesting? No wonder we find lion dens. He collected real lions, too. No wonder there were lion dens in Babylon. And no wonder he, was picture, he is pictured in Daniel's dream of chapter 7 as the lion. All right, well, seeing the power, the wealth, the majesty of this city was going to be just part of the psychological and the spiritual reprogramming of these young, small-town, uh, monotheistic, you know, they only believe in one God, these Hebrew teenagers to turn them to, to brainwash them to being polytheistic and to be faithful servants of their new king, Nebuchadnezzar. It would be very much like the propaganda of our higher education system today, which is built on humanism and atheism, and whose chief end is to destroy the faith of those they consider to be backward, ignorant young people who still believe that the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus is Lord and Savior. They're still trying to brainwash our young people today Sadly, you know, out of the some 60 young people that were taken to Babylon in this first captivity, there were only four who did not bow the knee. The rest were brainwashed into the system as far as we know. And isn't that what is happening today with our young people? Oh, how we need to be praying for them. All right, thank you. Let's pray. Speaking of prayer, Father God, thank you again for this time we've had together to study your word, to open it, to find out so many things that are in it that sometimes we don't even know about. We've passed over them and didn't understand, and so we moved on. But history certainly is secular. It just comes or whatever started comes around, and it's just amazing how little we have learned from it. But I pray that as, as your people, that we will learn from it and we will have an influence on our society to, to get people to wake up and to see what is happening. There's nothing new under the sun, and if we don't repent and turn back to you, the same thing's going to happen to us that happened to Assyria. I mean, to, um, well, to all the Gentile nations and also to, to Israel and to Judah. Lord, help us to be alert. Help us to be awake. Help us to be watchmen on guard. And especially help us to um, have an influence on our next generation, our young people and our grandchildren, Lord, so that they would be like Daniel and stand firm and strong and on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, for it is your word. It is the word of truth. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.